This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Today's guest is Arnaud Debier, a conservation biologist who lives in Brazil and is the founder of the Giant Armadillo Conservation Project. He is also the subject of Hotel Armadillo, a story done by the BBC and narrated by the David Attenborough on the giant armadillos of the Pantanal region in Brazil. Arnaud has dedicated his life to this elusive creature to learn more about their behavior and learn how we can also protect them. Uh, It's a really fascinating conversation. I enjoyed talking to Arnaud immensely. We chat about obviously giant armadillos, but also giant anteaters, uh, the fires that have recently plagued the Amazon, the role of zoos in conservation, and so much more. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Arnaud WA. Well, Arnaud, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I've been following your work for a while, and I'm a huge fan and excited to connect. I think the the best way to start is with what is a giant armadillo? I remember when I first found out about your research, I I Googled them and obviously I know what an armadillo is, but I never recognized how big they actually get. Yeah, well, what many people don't know is that there are actually 20 different species of armadillos. Um, people in the United States are familiar with the nine-banded armadillo. Mm-hmm which is the one that's found in Texas, in Florida, in the Carolinas. Um, that's the one that's in Owen Meany, um, you know, a, a, the, 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 a, a small prayer for Owen Meany. That's what people often... Oh, okay, I got you. That, that's the nine-banded armadillo. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are actually tw- uh, 20 different species of armadillos, of armadillos and um, the giant armadillo, as, it, as its name suggests, is the biggest of them all. Uh, giant armadillos are giants. Um, they can weigh about 80 pounds. Wow. They, they're basically, you, you think of a, a small Labrador retriever. That's about the size that they reach. Wow. And one of their main characteristics is on their front uh, paws, this huge claw. The middle finger, the third finger has an elongated claw which is about 15 centimeters, which I'm not sure how many inches that is, but it's, it's pretty big. Um, we'd have to Google that. And, and so this is a really rare species of armadillo, um, but it actually has a pretty wide distribution. It's found mm-hmm. throughout South America, from northern Venezuela to southern Argentina, basically everything east of the Andes, it's found in a variety of biomes. It's found in the Amazon, so the wet Amazon, mm-hmm. the uh, grasslands of the Cejado, the very dry Chaco. Uh, there's some, a little bit, some left in the Atlantic forest. So, you know, this species is actually pretty adaptable. It lives in a diversity of biomes. However, wherever it is found, it's always found at low densities. Mm-hmm. 
So there's always not, they have naturally low densities. And you were talking about their really large claws. Can you explain what they use those for? So they use these really large claws to dig up ants and termites, which are their, their main prey. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you, their main prey is actually mostly termites in the Pantanal where we're working. And um, the termite mounds are like big cement blocks. You can see, you, you might think uh, maybe those images of Africa, you see those big termite mounds. That's what we have also here in South America in the Pantanal, these big termite mounds. And, and some of them are really, really hard like cement. So they dig through them and that's how they can reach their prey, the termites. And they use their sticky tongue to, to lap them up and, and, and consume them. Wow, that's so fascinating. And then they also dig these massive burrows, right? How, how big do those become and is that generally where they live for their entire life or do they how frequently are they digging their burrows no so giant armadillos actually they spend all day deep underground in their burrows and their burrows are about um 40 centimeters wide 35 to 40 centimeters wide and they can be up to five meters deep oh wow um and and they use those so they they spend all day underground in their burrow. They come out at night. They're strictly nocturnal mm -hmm. to forage on ants and termites, and then they'll go back, dig up a burrow, and go back in. On average, we say that they dig a new burrow every two three nights. Oh wow! So, they, so actually, so they have these huge home ranges, mm -hmm. and in these home ranges, they have um, they 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 have all these they dig these different burrows. Now people always say but why do they dig so many burrows? I mean isn't that a waste of energy? If you see the giant armadillo because they have these powerful front claws, mm -hmm. but their back paws are also like shovels so they kind of break the ground with their front claws then use as shovels the back paws and they can dig these burrows in a matter of minutes. In 20 minutes they've dig they dug this deep burrow. Um, so they go they forage and sometimes instead of coming back they'll keep foraging and then they'll just naturally dig a new burrow. So the, the home range of a giant terminal has lots of these uh, deep burrows, um, and they're usually almost al always exclusively uh, uh, dug in forested areas. Interesting. And so in these forested areas, these, so this is why people don't really see that giant terminals are present, because their burrows are kind of hidden in forested areas. Um, and, and, and one of the most, I guess the most exciting and fun things we've learned about giant armadillos is that actually these burrows that they dig and then abandon basically mm -hmm. um, play a really important role in the ecosystem. These burrows, we've documented over 80 different species using giant armadillo burrows. Whoa. And that will range from, you know, the large collar peccary mm -hmm. to, to small rodents, um, agoutis, carnivores, ocelots, all kinds of animals use them. They use the deep burrow as a refuge against predators, but also a refuge against extreme temperatures uh, because the, um, the, the burrow keeps a more or less constant 25 degrees Celsius temperature. Mm -hmm. And so when it's really hot outside, it's cool in the burrow. And when it's really cool, cold outside, we have some uh, cold, cold fronts sometimes uh, in between May and August. And so when it's cold outside, it's warm inside the burrow. So it's a great place. It's a great place to seek refuge against uh, temperatures. In fact, one of the animals that uses the giant armadillo burrow the most is the southern tamandua, mm -hmm. which is this small, you know, yellow anteater. Um, and and they, and and they um they have low metabolism, like all species of Xenarthra, which um, these are species that have low bo low body temperature. So it's important for them to seek refuge against temperature. So they use them a lot. 
So, so that's why we call giant armadillos ecosystem engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, e ecosystem engineers means that they modify the resources in the environments. Um, and in the United States, the big best example of an ecosystem engineer is the beaver. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Beaver. They 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 fell trees. They build a dam, and that that changes the whole ecosystem. Well, that's kind of what in a smaller scale giant armadillos do because they provide these burrows, which actually giant turtles provide homes for other species. Have you noticed uh, similar population trends where if for some reason in a part of the Pantanal the, or a part of Brazil, the giant armadillos are doing or not thriving quite as much that some of the alternate species that use the burrows are also experiencing declines? So, so I, that's a really good question. So are there we call those cascading effects, right? Mm -hmm. So when you lose an animal, does it have cascading effects? Will it affect other species? Well, um, I think what the burrows do is it provides an important spot, a, a spot, a refuge against predators, against extreme temperatures. It's a great place for animals to forage, a place where predators will go look for other animals. But I don't think it's like essential part of their the other species ecology or biology. Mm -hmm. So we haven't been able to register. We know places where, where the gentleman is going or extinct, but Usually in those places, there are other factors which will impact the species, such as hunting or habitat, habitat loss or mm -hmm. road construction. So we, we don't have, and I, at the moment I cannot imagine, we don't have a, a, a setup with an experiment where we could um, have a control, sure, see yeah. how the population behaves with or without. And there are so many other factors that it will be really hard to determine. Yeah, I could imagine, especially when it's so hard to find the armadillos in the first place. Actually, the armadillos are yeah, yeah. exactly. The armadillos are really, really hard to, to find. Um, what is the um, reason for that really low population density? Like, even if it's naturally occurring, is there something about the way that they interact with each other that lends well, itself to that? Well, these the species is is they are um, they have strict home ranges with very o little overlap between them. Okay. So we've actually documented only three percent overlap between males and females. So they have very strict, uh, very you know well-defined territories with little overlap. But then we'll, the males will, will go through. The males will be able to will, can travel many many miles to explore females' territories. But then they kind of stick to themselves. So they have defined territories. But I think what really impacts their density is is also um, their just simply their population growth rate. Mm -hmm. I think that's also one of the key uh, findings that we have um, discovered in the project has been about reproduction. We found that giant armadillos um, only have one pup at a time, mm -hmm. and that they have the the interbirth rate that we have documented was of three years. And we have we have also documented um, that males reach sexual maturity between seven to nine years of age. Um, and we believe that for the females, it could be even later than that because we're currently following two females that have not bred or reached sexual maturity, and they are more than seven years old. Wow. <laughs> so here's a species that will be able to have their first pup after their seven years, mm -hmm. and they only have one pup every three years. So you can see that the population growth rate is very, very low. Yeah. And, and that means that any threats, um, even you know natural threats, will have impacts on the, on the population. We believe that giant armadillos live for very long. They should, right? If or else they would go extinct with those mm -hmm. kind of with those kind of parameters. But 
but I think that's what makes them also really fragile. So we have this really tough-looking, strong species, but in fact, they're really fragile. And what are their the major pressures that they have as a population? Is it mostly naturally occurring, or is it a lot of man-made interference well you know this is the whole story of neotropical conservation this is what's going on throughout south america right the biggest threat is obviously um habitat loss mm -hmm. habitat loss that's that's going that's that's um that's that's just getting worse and worse um, hunting is also an issue. Um, we've, we've also just this year published a paper showing that roadkill is also an issue. We're starting to document and un uh, unravel the, the importance of their health and finding what is impacting their health. Because they have low temperature, low body, low, low metabolism, low body temperature, they are hosts to lots of different diseases and they can be considered reservoirs to certain diseases. So we're kind of documenting that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, um, the real thing is that because they have such low population growth rates, um, you can imagine that just the removal of any individual, whether naturally or through man-made mm -hmm. man -made factors, will have a huge impact on the population. Every animal is precious. Totally. Where, was there significant impacts from the recent fires this year? In the Amazon? So, so I don't work in the Amazon. I work in the Pantanal. But I think what the, the, the fires, because they dig these burrows, sometimes they can, they can, they can escape the fires. The problem Got is when there's, a lo when there's a lot of biomass, we've had a year where we've lost three animals due to fires. And that what happened is the animal, when there's a lot of biomass buildup, the smoke will go, go into the burrow, and then the animal will get disoriented and then walk through the fire and get burned. Oof. But they... But the big problem, you know, you mentioned the Amazon fires that we had um, mm -hmm. very recently. The big question there is not so much the fires, is what happened before the fires. Fires are not a natural occurrence in the Amazon. They are always man-made. And why did these fires occur? Because of, of large-scale deforestation. Mm -hmm. What happens is all everything gets cut down piled up and then dries up and then it's set on fire. And then of course the fires go into the forest, which is even worse. But what is, I think what, is, what will be worse for the giant tornadoes is the high insane rates of deforestation we have been seeing since January last year. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a huge change now. Um, and, and, and there's uh, deforestation rates have really increased, which is then um, demonstrated by the fires. But, but the fires are a symptom of what's going on. And I think that was a really important distinction that you made as well that I think often got confused in the media, especially in the U.S., is everybody's like, well, there's a natural forest fire that happens in forests as part of no. their natural life cycle, which is true in like the redwoods and things like that in California, but it's definitely not true in the Amazon. It's not true in the Amazon. In the Cejado and the, and the Pantanal, I'm based in the Pantanal where we work. The Pantanal has has is it has has fires naturally occurring almost every year. Of course, most of them are man-made nowadays because it's a traditional technique to clear um to clear pasture, um, to regenerate growth, or to control ticks. There's lots of reasons. But if well done, fire is actually a natural is 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 a tool that has is been used for for you know the past two centuries by landowners. So yes, this year the fires were much bigger. But that's because last year we had constant rain, so there was no fires. We had more biomass. So the fires in the Pantanal were very scary, but 
and, and did a lot of damage. But there are more. But but the vegetation and wildlife is more adapted. Mm-hmm. However, that is absolutely not the case of the Amazon. I I always find it really interesting when um, folks like yourself find this one species that really calls to them and speaks to them. Can you talk a little bit about what about the giant armadillo? Was this something that like, how did you fall into this line of work? It seems so, um, it's so interesting for a species that so few people even know exists. Like what made this something that you're like, I really want to make sure my, I spend so much of my life's work helping to protect. It's, it's both a really hard question to answer and a very easy question to answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's hard because I'm not sure what led me up to giant armadillos. Mm-hmm. I was always more driven by questions. And so a lot of my work before in conservation was always looking at a question. Um, the impact of an invasive species, um, the impact of hunting, natural um, resource management, uh, the 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 um, look. I was looking. I was also interested in in looking at uh, key species of grasses that were were being consumed by wildlife and and, and the cattle. And so I was always really question based. But all my life, I've always loved armadillos, and I had worked with the nine banded armadillo before. Mm-hmm. And when I came to the Pantanal, you know, almost uh, in two thousand and two, working on a completely different species, uh, pigs and peccaries, um, I always was I was always curious to see giant armadillos. And so this was a species that always called to me. Um, and um, and and after eight years of working in the Pantanal, and one you know one of the research. Uh, questions that I did that I looked at was dense spe- mammal densities and I walked over 2,000 kilometers of transects in the Pantanal mm-hmm. walked a lot and I had never seen a giant armadillo so that was starting to drive me a little bit crazy <laughs> that this was a species yeah. I really wanted to see and so I first started a pilot study uh, 10 years ago just placing some camera traps to see because basically I just wanted to see the species mm-hmm. um, I was trying to read about it I couldn't find anything and you know, once I saw the species, um, even just through camera traps, I don't know, something uh, really changed in me. This is a species that calls to me that I'm, you know, deeply passionate about. I don't know, there's something about them that really moves me and that just completely changed my focus, everything I was doing to just focus on on, on, on trying to save them. They, 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 it's such an incredible species, and to me, to be in the presence of a giant armadillo is is such an honor, and it's it's such a, it's an incredible, life changing feeling. I mean, it's almost I don't want to offend anybody, but to me, it's almost like a religious feeling. I don't mm-hmm. know you you, you ha- I have so much respect and admiration for this species. I'm really I'm really deeply deeply moved. I have they really move me a lot, and 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 I feel strongly connected to them um and even you know i always say that even today after 10 years you know when i'm in the presence of a giant armadillo i can really feel that my heart beats faster my stomach clenches mm-hmm. <laughs> um when we, we we do the procedure when i'm with them i somehow i, I often end up sweating much more I don't know why. <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're, they're, it's just a species that has a, a, a huge impact on me and i find them absolutely amazing um, and, and, you know, we talked and so one of the first camera trap pictures I had of them was of the animal coming in the burrow. And then, you know, I, I left the camera for, I think, I don't know, maybe a month and a half. 
Mm-hmm. I had an animal come in, stay there for t- 48 hours, and then come out. Um, and so already, you know, and then I saw a lots of, I, I think I documented about 10 different species using the burrow. So in just my <laughs> first camera trap, I was like, oh my goodness, what the hell? You know, I was just absolutely fascinated. Um, and, and, you know, the more we work, the, the more questions we actually have. And so in July, we'll be celebrating the 10 year anniversary of the giant armadillo project. And it's really crazy because what started with just me, mm-hmm out there alone, putting out a few camera traps to try to see the species. We now have created uh, our own NGO. We have our small Brazilian NGO. Mm -hmm. We have 10 10 full-time staff, um, six PhD students, 12 master's students, over 30 collaborators, I don't know, maybe 30 volunteers. And it's really turned into this huge movement, something much, much bigger. And we work on the giant armadillo and virus, virus biomes, but also its cousin, the, the giant anteater, which we also work with. We have a huge project program on giant anteaters. Um, and so all this has really led to so much. I mean, it's amazing everything that this has led to. And so uh, the drive to save the armadillo and work with the armadillo has actually you know, turned into something huge. Well, first and foremost, I think that's in, deserves acknowledgement. Congratulations. I think it's so, it must be so exciting to do something that was strictly taken out of passion. Like I want to go, there wasn't a research project. There wasn't um, funding. It was really just, I want to go and document this species because of the sheer desire to see it. And then to have that over the course of 10 years become something that not only is helping to understand about these creatures, but also protect them must be an incredibly um, fulfilling feeling. Um, so congratulations for that. Thank you. I think I think the feeling for me is I, I feel very humbled mm-hmm. and very grateful. Mm-hmm. And I say that because humbled is because of all the support we have we have been getting. So this is this is this is a project from. Uh, that, that has depended on so many partnerships and the support of so many amazing, incredible people. So through the Giant Armadillo, I've also met and worked with amazing people. So I have to acknowledge the 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 our partners and and what is amazing. So just I, I'll talk. I'm not. I'll talk maybe on another moment about Giant yeah. Antures, but the Giant yeah. Armadillo. 80% of our funding for the Giant Armadillo project has come from zoos in North America and Europe. Oh, wow. And what and and there are no giant armadillos in zoos or in North America or Europe. So, this the giant armadillo is also a great illustration of the new role that zoos are playing mm-hmm. uh, at the forefront of species conservation. <clears throat> and it's not just the funding that they have provided, right? Of course, that has been key to our success. Eighty percent of our funding has come from zoos, but they've also provided us with technology resources capacity building i mean it's been an amazing journey in two weeks another member of my staff is going for training to the houston zoo to spend um three weeks at the houston zoo for training on data processing health monitoring she is then going to the nashville zoo to learn about uh care of of uh, uh, uh giant anteater pups because we have a project for uh of of uh hand rearing uh Pup, giant anteater pups that get uh, that whose mothers get killed by roadkill. Mm. Um, l- so looking at all the veterinary care and all the proper care. So we, I mean, it's just in- insane. Um, actually, most of our staff 
are supported by zoos, get their salaries sponsored by, by zoos. Our head veterinarian, Danilo Kluver, is sponsored by the Naples Zoo. Uh, my right-hand man, Gabriel Masukato, who coordinates the Pantanal work, the Houston Zoo. Deborah is funded by the Nashville Zoo, mm -hmm. our educator by the Reed Park Zoo. I mean, and the list just goes on. Most of our, most of these, um, a, 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 a lot of these institutions have really made our work possible. Yeah, it's funny. I some one a close friend actually asked me that this week. He was like, "Damn, what's your perspective on zoos?" And I said, "It's a very loaded question because there's a broad <laughs> spectrum of what a zoo could mean." But I think the trajectory of zoos has certainly been really positive over the past few decades because traditionally there's or even now there's certainly some small zoos that still have some practices that are really horrifying for a wildlife lover like chaining up elephants and things like that to walk around in small enclosures but the people who are on the forefront are the good models of zoos in the country san diego dc cincinnati nashville houston like you said they're on the forefront of conservation and arguably one of the largest um players in species conservation and research and technology in the world um, that without them, I mean, you look at, I know San Diego zoo is doing a really important role in trying to protect the Hawaiian crow right now, the work that the Irwins do in Australia. It, I mean, without them, the captive breeding programs for the Sao La, which is stuff we've talked about on the podcast a lot. There's just so many opportunities that zoos present to be a thought leader in helping to protect species on the brink of extinction that in general, they're an incredibly powerful and positive player in the conservation world. Absolutely. And, and, and so there, there are several points to be made. First of all, when people are worried about this, well, this issue of animal welfare and zoos, I think that the biggest advocates for animal welfare are the zoos themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that's why they have created these associations, the AZA, the, the accreditation system. So they monitor themselves to provide their animals with the absolutely best care. So sometimes people mix up maybe these roadside menageries or these other kind of institutions which are not recognized or accredited. But for animal welfare, I believe me, I think the, 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 the zoos are at the forefront of welfare. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing that I think has to be said and is not recognized by the public in general <clears throat> and the animal welfare people, the, the animal rights activists. I think that a lot of these people, a lot of these animal rights activists or people that listen to them, these are often people that live in urban settings that have that only think about their pets. They have not spent any time in the field. Because they do not understand what animal welfare is and what it means to live in the wild. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different picture. With our work with the anteaters, the anteaters and highways project, we are monitoring highways. We have so far documented last few years over 725 anteaters getting killed on our roads. We are, we are now raising pups to be reintroduced because their mothers get killed on the roads. Our, our, our anteaters, where we're working in study areas, where we're working in, in areas that are being transformed into... Uh, soy fields, our, our animals are being dosed in, in pesticides and chemicals. People often have no idea what it's like to live in the wild. The wild is a little bit different. There are roads to cross. It's very stressful. It's not exactly what the picture people paint. Mm -hmm. So they need, to, they, they need to have a different – need to go out and spend some time in the field to understand what, it, what they're comparing to because people have this – 
this image of the wild that's completely different. It's tough. It's rough. It's cruel. Yeah. The fun example I like to give about that is so with our zoo partners, we, we, um, they sometimes send members of their staff because zoo people who work in zoos are, of course, absolutely passionate about wildlife conservation. And so partners that fund us, they send sometimes their staff to go look at our work. Sure. And one of our partners um, sent a member of their staff that had been working with um, anteaters for, for over five years that was passionate about anteaters. And when she came to the Pantanal to catch her first anteater with us, her reaction when she saw her first anteater was, ew, these are <laughs> how gross. <laughs> I mean, because in the wild, anteaters are covered in fleas and ticks. They are much thinner than anything, than the fat, healthy, beautiful animals that she had. They smell horrific. They were not these healthy, beautiful animals she was used to at her zoo, mm -hmm. which are absolutely pampered and beautiful out of their care. No, these are animals that, you know, they had, this animal had fought with another animal. It had these horrible gashes that we, we had to treat. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it, it just puts things in perspective. So when people say, are animals happy in zoos? You know, these are, you know... I'm not going to say any more about that. I think some people, some people sometimes are a little bit misguided to be polite. Mm -hmm. And so we, so that's something we have to think of uh, when, when we're talking about animal welfare in zoos, you know, people get out there, you know, learn about a little bit, more, need to learn a little bit more. Um, zoos are at the forefront of animal welfare, but they're also at the forefront of species conservation. And they are right now the number one donor, financial donor, throughout the world for species conservation. And, 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 and one of the things, when I say that I'm so grateful about the giant armadillo conservation program and the Anteaters and Hawaii project, how we've been able to grow our work, it's not been just a financial contribution, but it's been also all the, the, the help that we've gotten from zoos because zoos are able to help us with um, uh, training, capacity building, mm -hmm. um, ed ed building our education program, an effective communication program, um, help us uh, evaluate our, our veterinary procedures. Um, all, and, and I have so many, so many examples. Um, the Naples Zoo has just helped us train on the use of a vet scan, which they have helped fundraise and donate. Mm -hmm. uh, they, so in, in, in in January, we came to pick up the vet scan. We were trained by the Naples Zoo staff, by the SeaWorld Bush Garden staff on how to use this and other collaborations. Um, last week, the Jacksonville Zoo uh, contacted me where their director said that he's offering us a free seminar to my staff on, on, on effective storytelling for conservation purposes. Um, in April, uh, I will be going to the Disney um, Animal Kingdom the Disney Conservation Fund is hosting an event for their, their partners so that they can uh, do capacity building on leadership, um, get projects together from learn to each other. So all these amazing opportunities to help grow, to grow uh, our, our, our staff and ourselves professionally. It's amazing. Um, the Houston Zoo uh, gives uh, out these awards, the Wildlife Warrior Award, which has completely changed one of my staff members. Uh, uh, this uh, biologist, Gabriel Masukato, has been working with me for eight years. He won the award. He spent one year at uh, one month at the Houston Zoo um, perfecting his English, getting training in all kinds of uh, education, leadership, um, all kinds of things. And this year, he was they, they actually paid for him and sponsored him to be part of the Emerging Wildlife Conservation Leadership Course, which is the two-year course. So our zoo partners, they really actually really um, 
provide lots of opportunities for the projects to grow. So uh, it, it's just an incredible experience. And that's why I really, if you will, my, my feeling after these 10 years of working is I feel absolutely humbled and grateful for all these fantastic opportunities that we have been provided with. I agree with you that there's probably a distinction that needs to be made between like a menagerie or these like roadside wildlife holding centers versus a zoo and the role that that plays. I think what's difficult for the average individual is just understanding which one of the zoos are the ones that we would like to support. Do you know if there's a, a resource? I know you mentioned the accredit, the accreditation. Yeah. Can you point listeners to a good resources to if they're thinking about going to a zoo how they can figure out which ones are likely helping the wildlife well, world and which ones aren't well the ones they will just try to check to see if the zoos are uh, aza accredited if there's the mm -hmm. you'll see that, that there's the aza aza the aza if they're an aza accredited zoo that means that they will have gone through all kinds of procedures and this is something that's renewed every five years um to get the accreditation, they have to write like almost a PhD thesis on everything from their nutrition, their education programs, the security, everything you can imagine they have to go through and they're checked by their peers. So um, this is really important. But also, you know, I think maybe the zoos that are getting working towards accreditation, um, I think you need to support them to go towards that. Um, because even the zoos are not that good. It's the public pressure that will help them get better and, 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 and be better. Because I also do believe that zoos play an essential role um, in, in, in creating empathy for wildlife, interest for wildlife. I think nowadays, and I have two kids, mm -hmm. um, you know, everything is becoming, they're so connected to this virtual world. I don't think anything, anything will ever be able to replace the experience, the three-dimensional experience of sounds and smells that you will get in a zoo. Um, and I know people say, well, a David Attenborough documentary is will, will teach kids much more than the experience in a zoo. And I really beg to defer because I do think that looking into the eyes of these animals or, or looking at these natural behaviors, watching, looking at them is life-changing. And so do not discard. I, and I know that some zoos have, there are, yes, some zoos that, need to improve but i would be look, leaning more towards improving than completely shutting everything down and i would I, I i think you know put pressure on them to improve not to simply shut down yeah that's an interesting question because i agree i would say to a large majority with with your points there i think where where i get somewhat hesitant is like i think you hear houston zoo and cincinnati and those ones that are great but you also mentioned like Bush Garden SeaWorld, which I think it's fantastic that they're supporting your program because obviously you're doing great things, but then you watch documentaries like Blackfish and the way that they've treated orca whales over the course of the last 20 to 30 years. And I'm kind of like, I want that place to shut down, you know? But that's, but so we have to be careful not to be also completely manipulated. Um, a lot of the things that were in Blackfish were also now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into whole advocacy, but sure. we, if you look at the documentary carefully, a lot of things are manipulated also. And let's and let's you know before, I think also SeaWorld is victim of their success because orcas before were killer whales, and they're the ones that turned them into this species that everybody's so passionate about. And back to my point of living in the wild, orcas in the wild, 
if animal rights activists spent the amount of money that they are spending on trying to shut down these institutions, spend money on conservation of their, 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 these animals in the wild where the animals are dying prematurely due to mercury poisoning, all kinds of issues, they could make so much more of a difference. I have, I have had the privilege of working with and collaborating with several people from SeaWorld, SeaWorld or, or SeaWorld Orlando and Bush Gardens, and I, and I have never met more passionate people regarding wildlife. They care, the, the staff that work there are absolutely passionate about wildlife, and their animals receive the, the best quality care that they can provide with the conditions that they have. And they're always improving. They are always seeking to improve. So do not shut down these places. Work with them and go to look at the programs. So I, I collaborate with Bush Gardens. We do the Bush Garden Camp where they bring these campers in um, uh, from all over Florida to learn about wildlife, to become uh, wildlife activists and, and be passionate. And they, I come in just for 20 minutes to speak on Skype with them. Um, so it's really easy. I think SeaWorld and SeaWorld has become an easy target with the orcas. Um, but I do think that the conversation, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely not convinced by the way the opinion is being manipulated. And, and I get a little bit angry when I see the amounts of money being spent on, 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 on this kind of advocacy. And I look at what's happening in the wild. And I want people to go look at the animals in the wild, the amount of money being spent, and then nothing is being done in conservation in the wild. And if you look at how much the SeaWorld Bush Garden Conservation Fund spends, I mean, it's incredible amounts. They do great work. Yeah, they just suck at communicating it. Yeah, I I think there's a it's a loaded question, and like any difficult problem, there's often complex nuances to a lot of that. Because I do agree that it's awesome that they're donating money. I do agree that you could very easily make the argument that there's like which dollars go the furthest when you're looking at wildlife conservation as a whole and would it be better to go directly into the field or to fight some of the atrocities of the ways that certain animals are kept at SeaWorld. And I, and I have no doubt that most of the people who work with these animals get into that line of work because they're wildlife lovers at heart. But I do wholeheartedly believe that there's just certain animals that we do not have the proper abilities to keep captive in healthy situations. So I'm a, I understand like the constraints that certain zoos that are trying to improve might have, but there's also just a infrastructure problem where we do not have the capacity to take large animals like orcas and keep them in healthy, safe environments captively. And I do think that those practices, maybe the answer is not completely demonize all of SeaWorld and all the people who work there and all the work that they do, but there's certain things that just seem medieval, like keeping a beautiful large orca in a small tank that has to stop. So I think I think it would be really interesting for you, and I can I can recommend you somebody to speak with um, uh, that that works at, at, at if you want to if you want to touch upon that issue. I'm an armadillo and antelope expert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, totally. I can't really talk more. All I, I can yeah, say I don't is that go too down some of the benefits that we've had. Um, just so if we just give the example of SeaWorld, we've had a member of their staff come to help us when we were trying to uh, use dogs to find giant armadillos. So because they have so much experience with animal training, they sent a member of their staff to work with us and work with the dog trainer and see if this was a method that could work for us. Mm -hmm. um, and thanks to him, we realized that it was not the right method for us, but he saved us a lot of time and money by, by making that trip. Um, they also help us. There's one of their nutritionist specialists that's 
with, with um, some of the stomach contents of anteaters that we find on the roads we collect. And one of their a nutrition specialists is helping to analyze those contents to, ha- contents to help understand nutritional needs of mm-hmm. giant anteaters. So we have all kinds of amazing collaborated collaborations with their scientists. Um, so I'm really, really proud of working with SeaWorld, uh, SeaWorld and Bush Gardens and being sponsored by their fund, in fact. Um, and, and, I've, and I've heard so many amazing stories of the work that they do, the rescue work that they do, um, that I think that the debate should talk about whether orcas should be held in captivity. I will give, I, I will give you the name and contact of somebody you can speak to on a podcast, which I, I think will really to. help you understand yeah. a little bit more. He's not shy of speaking up, and he will really help um, bring a healthy debate on this issue. I, I would love to. Yeah, if we, we'll connect offline about that. I think that'd be fantastic. And I hope you know like my intention around – really all of this podcast is there is nobody who like I have not nearly to the extent that you have dedicated my life to wildlife. And I'm so thankful for the work that you do for, for me, there's just all these conversations going on and shining a light on them and understanding them more is something that I think is really important for everybody to have, regardless of where you fall. I, I think there's just in general, I wish that having open conversations about things that people don't fully understand or don't agree on are, are things that we could do better at as a society right now. But I think for for the sake of talking, because I have so many more interesting, I mean, interest on the armadillo front, for the sake of people listening, I'm going to link to the AZA and also the SeaWorld Conservation Fund in the show notes. So if you want to take a look at that and send me any questions that you'd be interested in talking to that SeaWorld person about. I think I'd love to set up that podcast. Um, Fantastic. But in terms of the armadillo, I think what what I got really excited about, or I could imagine would be really exciting for you in the in taking on this NGO project, is not only is it an animal that you have a deep connection with, um, and an animal that's so difficult to find, but everything you're discovering and finding scientific uh, research around and studies around, it must be largely undocumented to this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like all the behavior must be new behavior that you're discovering, right? Yes. So so, so that's actually one of the easy parts of working with the giant armadillo. <laughs> Excuse me. Is that everything is new, right? So, so even with a small sample size, you, 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 you everything is fascinating. Um, and so I compare this with my wife, who's been working now for 25 years with the lowland taper. Mm-hmm. She, she, she's, she's looking more at trends and getting a lot of, lot of samples to, to document new things. Whereas us, you know, pretty much everything we do ends up turning into something new. So, 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 so that, that is of course really, really interesting. Was the, was the, um, was bringing the anteater, giant anteater, into the mix of the NGO, what is the reasoning behind that? Are they very naturally related <laughs> animals where a lot of the work you were doing with armadillos, so, you were learning about anteaters as well? Yes. Yeah, so so the anteaters, well, they kind of came in. Um, it was – we had been working already for three years with giant armadillos, and they were really – we were not catching any. They were really hard. We had like maybe one animal that we were monitoring. It was really hard. And – in fact, giant armadillos and giant anteaters, they are, um, they're related. They're part of the same superorder, Xenarthra. And so they share a lot of characteristics. Giant armadillos and giant anteaters, they are, both have low body, low body temperature, low metabolism. They eat ants and termites. They're mm-hmm. found in the same place. So my thinking around them was, well, you know, let me catch a few giant anteaters because they're easier to catch. I'm going to catch a few giant anteaters. 
um, put some collars on them, and hopefully through the giant anteater learn more about the giant armadillos. So, you know, our our our, our work with giant anteaters really started um, because we wanted to learn more about giant armadillos. Interesting. And 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 then. And then that just kind of turned into a whole world of itself because that became fascinating, um, and 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 what happened with with the project in general? We ha- we're working the Pantanal for its last ten years, mm-hmm. and the Pantanal we're working in the middle of the Pantanal in about three hundred and fifty square kilometers, a large area. It's about ten different ranches working only on private properties, um, but it's a relatively pristine area um, with no hunting. No paved roads, mm-hmm. very little habitat loss, the occasional fire, but you know it's very well, it's really pristine. So this is the this is kind of like our laboratory where we can study the natural behavior and ecology of these species. So this is this, but the idea is then to branch out and work in other areas where the species is threatened, and so we did that for both of the species. And so for the giant armadillo, now we're working in the Cerrado of Mato Grosso do Sul, where I live, where actually we've documented that there's only 16% of the native habitat left. And of this 16%, um, most of it is fragmented. And the average fragment is uh, is about 20 acres. That's about, I don't I think it's uh, 22 acres. So that's 10 hectares. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in the Pantanal, we've shown that the... Um, the average giant armadillo uses 2,000 hectares, and and the average fragment in the Cerrado is, is 10. So you can see that they live in very fragmented habitats. Mm-hmm. So we've we've mapped the habitat. We're working with the government to try to create protected areas. In fact, we've had the giant armadillos have been named as one of the indicator species for the creation of protected areas in our state. Oh, wow. So that's really exciting. Sure. Um. We are working, so we're looking, so now we've created the map, we're working with authorities to try to get these areas where they occur, where we're showing that. We're also looking at what, looking a bit of the science of um, how much are left, so density, we did this huge density study for the last two, two years where we placed over 180 camera traps, mm. trying to document their density in the Cerrado. Um, we're also working with beekeepers, in, in these, so giant terminals occur in these tiny little fragments they have to use several fragments to survive, and then when they cross, they get you know killed on roads and all these things. But then in these little fragments, there are beekeepers that set up beehives to forage so that they can make honey out of the native flowers. And what's been happening is that the giant armadillos have learned to knock over the beehives. <laughs> and so the beekeepers, which are supposed to be our, our like right, these are the stakeholders we want to work with. These are the people that want to protect native habitat, right, for their bees. Sure. They now start hating the giant armadillo. <laughs> in fact, we did we did interviews to those that have are in the giant armadillo area. Um, about 30% of them say that giant armadillo are the biggest threat to their livelihood. Wow. So so that's a huge that's a huge problem. So right now what we're working on is create a certificate um, that if they put in place mitigation strategies, which is basically to raise up their hives and, and uh, attach them to um, this big board kind of thing, um, if they can raise their hives, then the, the uh, giant armadillos won't predate them. They will get a certificate, and then we're going to help promote giant armadillo-friendly honey and try to create open up new markets for them. So that's something we're just starting this year. Oh, that's amazing. It's also just beneficial for them too, right? Not to have to worry Actually, about so, them yeah. getting knocked over. We, another thing we're doing, uh, we just expanded to the, no, in 2018, we expanded to the Atlantic Forest. 
Um, there were three, the, the giant terminals were found in three different reserves. So in 2018, we started working two of them. We have, a, I had a master's student work there. And in fact, he, his thesis, he just handed his thesis um, last week. He's going to defend in about a month. I think it's very sad to say, but I think we've been able to document that giant terminals are really on their way to extinction there. He documented only two animals um, in, in the whole, in the whole 50 uh, square kilometers, 50 50, sorry, it's 50, 50,000 square kilometers. So it's huge areas, these two reserves, no more giant terminals. They've been ex gone extinct due to, basically due to hunting. Um, and so now we're, we're, we just started now a month ago in a new reserve in is still the Atlantic forest. Um, we're starting a new project with camera trapping, trying to find to see if this is the last population of giant armadillos. Mm. So we believe that there's still giant armadillos there. So now we're working in the last reserve where giant armadillos are found in the Atlantic forest. So, so these are you know so we have all these different projects. We also have one in the Argentinian Chaco, which we have a partner that we've 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 trained. And so really the idea now is really to have all these satellite projects in these zones where giant armadillos need our help. The Pantanal continues, so we can learn more about them. But then. <coughs> Excuse me. Really get into conservation action in these other areas where we, they need our help. Would you because say that there's one? Is there one behavior that you've learned about giant armadillos that was the most surprising to you, or the most interesting? Well, besides, you know, their their, their important role as ecosystem engineers of giving homes to other species, I think one of the maybe most surprising, but maybe the most endearing to me was the parental care. Mm. Giant armadillo mothers are amazing mothers. They're really good mothers. They take care of their pup, you know, for at least a good 12 months. Oh, wow. They, they're very, very gentle. Um, the images we have of that are absolutely I've surreal. seen a few of those. It, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. There's actually just a post that came out on PBS. They just edited a little document, a little five-minute blurb I, I can share with you um, that you can show where they filmed this life story of one of our, the giant armadillos that we followed, the life of Alex. One of our uh, giant armadillos, yeah. and, and they did a really they they put together a cool little um, film about it. It's really nice, and I think yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things about giant armadillos that these big creatures that you always think about being tough and strong are actually such gentle mothers and such wonderful parental care. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll link that PBS in the show notes for listeners as well. Uh, Arno, I'm going to go into the rapid fire questions that we wrap up every podcast with. Sure. Um, Favorite wildlife book and documentary? Yikes, wildlife book. Wildlife documentaries, of course, all the David Attenborough documentaries. And I think The Trials of Life was something that really influenced me. That series, The Trials of mm. Life, really influenced me. I really like the Alan Rabinowitz books. Um, a lot, and 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 gorillas in the mist, of course. But I think maybe Alan Rabinowitz's books have, were pretty influential. I forgot to mention on this podcast, there's actually a David Attenborough documentary about you, right? What was it like? That must have been a surreal experience to hear him talking about your work. Yes, but remember, we don't meet him. He, we met him when he went to the studio to film, to to record. But, um, but yeah, it was it was it was, it was an insane experience just having him say. The name of the project. We're talking about giant armadillos. That was, that was really, really, uh, oh, a very, very humbling and 
very, very grateful for that, of course. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. And, and, and it's an animal that he loves because it's an animal that he never really saw. So it's an animal <laughs> that he's also really, really interested in. And, um, and I, I've been able to meet him several times throughout the years. And he is maybe one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's really, really just such a nice man. If, if you could look back on all your work in conservation, is there one moment that really sticks out to you where you were really present? And thought to yourself, like, I can't believe I get to do the work that I do for a living. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's kind of the feeling I have every time I'm in the presence of a giant armadillo. Because, you know, even though I work with them, I, bear, I, I almost never see them. I, see, I, I listen to them through telemetry signal. Mm-hmm. I see them through camera trap images or videos, but I never get to see them only when we have a capture. So we have only these very fleeting moments where we capture them that you get to spend time with them. And for me... It's, 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 it's always, you know, an incredible, 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 incredible moment. Yeah. So I still feel that every time. Is there uh, one moment that sticks out as the scariest moment? Have you ever been out there setting camera traps or something and just got a little too close to comfort with, uh, something in the jungle? Not, not in the Pantanal that I can remember, you know, we have discomfort, dis- un- uncomfortable moments, but never, I never say like very, I've, I've never felt threatened or mm-hmm. scared that, you know, uh, for my life or anything like that. Certainly not. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, that's definitely the better answer because obviously we hope nobody goes through that, but sometimes those bring out some pretty crazy stories. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But the next five years if things go according to plan what would what is like the one north star that you're pushing for that would be um like your biggest goal over the course of the next five years well my, my goal we, we so we were really um we're, something we're really proud of is that we we helped the government um cre- in 2018 create a national action plan for giant armadillos and giant anteaters and that's a five-year plan it was published now um in April of 2019, and that's what we want to we want to implement that plan. So that that's kind of um, guiding our strategy for the next um, next five years, and that's really the plan we want to implement. So all the questions and activities that are in that plan, that's what we want to do. So that's kind of guiding our thinking and and what we, where we want to be. That's amazing. And my last question: If you could take a billboard and put it on the side of a major highway that disseminates one message in ten words or less. What would you put on that billboard? I don't know. believe the scientists. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a good one. Because I do feel that you know, a, a, a lot of the problems we're coming into, we're running into right now, are, are maybe lack of, of of you know understanding of facts, and it feels like facts don't matter anymore. Now, I don't want to sound like arrogant or anything when you say believe the scientists, as if only the scientists, but maybe the, you know, what I want to say is maybe believe facts, look for facts, look for truths. Stop just believing these stupid messages you see on social media or these kinds of things because it's doing so much harm and it's making us so mean to each other. You know, mm-hmm. people are becoming so aggressive and negative and mean to each other. And I, so I don't find that debates are becoming passionate. I find that debates are becoming very mean. Um, there's this negativity to it that's really wrong. And if sometimes we could just breathe and listen and read the facts, you know, very carefully, taking removing all the emotion 
I think so much more would be answered. Maybe we could agree much more. And I think that's really important. And so, believe, you know, listen to the scientists or believe the scientists. I mean, that's just what I mean. So it's not – don't believe it in – in, in a blind way, but maybe just go research facts, take the time to breathe and listen a little bit and, and, and you know, try to remove that emotion because that's what science is supposed to be, is, is, is demonstrating facts that are in a replicable way, you know, that, that, so, so that are devoid of any emotion or any of these other things, the facts, right? Mm -hmm. It's a demonstration of facts. And so I think that's what I would like people to, to, to kind of look at. I think that's a really important sentiment. I mean, I'm always of the opinion that I know I'm not right about everything, 100%. Uh -huh. um, and I would appreciate the opportunity to understand that I'm wrong. In the only way that I can do that is by having a conversation where I don't feel threatened and uncomfortable. And oftentimes people lose sight of that, that oftentimes yelling something over and over again at somebody is probably the worst way if you actually really want to change their thought processes behind something. But absolutely. And getting personal, you start insulting people's mothers and whatever. <laughs> people, I mean, people, if you, things get really out of hand, right? They do. And, and you know, we're, and, and we see especially, uh, you, you, you'll probably be feeling that very soon with the elections coming up. You'll, you'll be experiencing a lot of that very soon. <laughs> yeah, I try and stay uh, <laughs> at an arm's No, distance. you have to stay neutral. Absolutely. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But we should absolutely be able to have a conversation and, and, and discuss things together. Yeah. I agree. And, and, that, and I, I just want to finish upon, sure. just, to, just to touch upon that. That has been so important for our work in conservation, has been having these personal conversations, being a spokesperson for the species, turning, but also, you know, um, being talking to everybody and anyone. And you never know who you're going to talk to, what impact that will have, whether it's a ranch hand or, uh, you know, a, a guy at a gas gasoline post or, or, or a landowner or, or, you know, you, you never know. And, and I, you know, there's a, a, a nice story I want to tell about the giant anteater project where at the beginning of the project, I wanted to capture some giant anteaters at the edge of the, at the edge of this road in a eucalyptus plantation. And, and the owner did not want me to go into this work in his, uh, property because you know he didn't want these you know environmentalists that are going to come and tell me what I'm supposed to do and um, you know and, and 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 you know because the conversation is so polarized now where the environmentalists on one side and the ruralists you know the agribusiness on the other mm -hmm. we don't talk to each other and and we rely on private properties and we work with private in, on private properties for both in both projects in fact in fact the ant, ant, giant entity project we work on 50. Uh, private property. So we have to have a really close relationship with landowners. And so to another landowner, I said, look, could you just get me to have a coffee with this guy and speak to him for maybe two minutes? And so he managed to do that. And I went to have a coffee with him and we talked and we actually, in fact, talked for about two hours. And okay, maybe I chewed off his ear. And in the end, I, I you know, I, he, I kind of won him over just because he was tired of me. He said, okay, whatever, <laughs> go work on my land. But when I worked, started working and capturing animals, every time we had a capture, I sent him these WhatsApp messages. So I kept sending him messages and pictures of the animals we were catching on his land. And, and, and then he got really excited. And then he invited me for a barbecue with my team to give a presentation about our work to all his staff and all the ranch oh, hands wow. and everything. And so, and then we became, he became really excited and proud about having us on work on his land. And then one day, we're driving on the highway. We saw this gigantic bill, billboard on the highway saying um, taking care of wildlife is also our mission and with a logo of his ranch and our logo. And so 
Wow, he, that's so really was, special. So, so it was wonderful. And so it just goes to show, you know, this was somebody who was uh, completely against the environmentalists. I don't want these, you know, NGO folks coming on, on my land and God, doing God knows what. He had, but then, you know, he, he opened his mind up enough to have a coffee. And then once we were able to speak to each other, in, in a very calm and friendly manner, we were able to understand each other. And then things moved on and we, and we really saw that we, we could be partners and biodiversity is important to him and to us. And, and we're partners and that's what we want to be. And that's what we want to do. We want to use giant armadillos and giant anteaters as ambassadors for biodiversity conservation, but working with people on private areas in private areas and getting, it's, it's, you know, getting everybody involved. Well, Hell yes. I think that's that's honestly a very special, beautiful, and important story. I think it's the perfect way to kind of encapsulate our entire conversation. And I it's really encouraging when you hear stories like that because it's so rare that you do, like two people from two completely opposite sides of the spectrum that come together and the fact that you could not only just get permission but win them over so much that it became part of the company's DNA and the work that they do. I think that's really incredible. So thank you so much, Arno, for taking the time, but more importantly, for all the work that you do. I'm a big fan. And now I have grown to love the giant armadillo. And before I hardly ever even knew that it existed, which I think is the one thing that always blows me away about the natural world is I spend more time talking about it than most people. And I still find animals that I had no idea about or, or knew uh-huh. very little about. And so thank you so much for our, coming on the podcast and all the work that you do. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time For all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.